Uh, I want to start with a story of um, what has been termed as the most missingest man in America. Um, his name is Judge Joseph Crater. He actually used to be a New York uh, Supreme Court justice, um, the, the New York Supreme Court. He and his wife had been vacationing in Maine, in Bangor, Maine, and he got a phone call uh, that his wife, uh, he didn't reveal to his wife what had happened and what the phone call was about. But he came back to his wife saying, I have to go back to New York, and uh, took off, went back to New York. He ended up cashing uh, a few major checks uh, during that time, up to about $60,000 worth of checks uh, in, in our present. It was like 15000 their day. Uh, and cashed all these checks out. And uh, eventually uh, went uh, and hung out with his mistress, which he had in New York, and, uh, and had dinner, had this wonderful steak dinner with one of his friends. And apparently he was in good spirits. Everyone was having a good time. And after dinner, he left. And instead of the three of them leaving together, um, he left on his own. Um, but nothing suspicious necessarily had happened. But that was the last time anyone would see the Supreme Court justice. And um, it turned into this massive manhunt. Um, they chased down thousands of clues. And they didn't actually close the case. This case happened almost 100 years ago. They didn't close the case until the 70s. And then as recently as 2012, there were still new evidences popping up. And so it's been this ongoing, fascinating sort of case to, to follow. I don't know why it hasn't turned into a podcast yet. Um, so if you want to make a murder mystery podcast, here's the story. Uh, and... Uh, but he, he was also, as a judge in uh, a questionable time period, um, involved a little bit with the mafia and some other uh, unscrupulous collection of people. Uh, and so um, there were all sorts of questions. Uh, what, what happened to the money? Did he get caught up in the wrong people? Did he run off with his mistress? Because at some point a month later, she disappears as well. And so there was always the questions. And guess what? They found all of his money uh, about a year later. And so... That wasn't lost, so it's always a question of what happened to this man. And one thing they found was a note. And it's like the last thing it seems like he ever wrote. And, and he wrote this. He said, I am very weary. That was it. He left it for his wife. And so that's, that's what we know of the story. And at some point there's a question. It's like, all right, like, what was, why was he very weary? What was happening in his life? And did it cause him to go escape? Did it cause him to confront some demons and bad handlings he was involved in. Did it cause him to, to move towards something? But at some point, at least if he's going to write this last note for his wife, something about his weariness just caused something to happen in his life. And it's a mystery. And at some point, I think some of us walk in here and like, yeah, if I were to write a note about exactly what my life is like right now, that I am very weary would be it. And you walk in here just tired and exhausted and worn out and beat up. And there's something about Jesus' sort of beautiful invitation here that speaks to so much of that. Actually, at one of the previous churches I worked at, uh, if you work, drive down North Ave, uh, there's a mural on the wall of one of the churches on the outside. It, it's this verse, come to me, all here weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a beautiful verse. But let's remember where we are. Jesus has been teaching his disciples, as I said, with Jackson, and the, to answer his question, he had just spent a whole chapter telling them, hey, I'm sending you out to preach about my kingdom, to, to heal people, but this is going to be hard work, and there's going to be a lot of people who reject you. Uh, not everybody's going to be very receptive to your message. And he sends them. And then we see some interaction around John the Baptist, Jesus's, I would argue, reframing 
John the Baptist's understanding of the kingdom that, that's going to coincide with the, the brokenness of the world. So there's going to be redeemed things and broken things all sort of together at the same time. And, and teaching about that. And, and, there's, and there's a lot of this upside-downness to the kingdom that so many people really struggle to understand, even John the Baptist. But Jesus is inviting them into this new way of life, this new understanding of the world. And then we encounter today's teaching. And it starts with these woes. So uh, he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. So just so you know, a lot of this area is, when we read the Gospels, we read about Passion Week, <clears throat> which is the tail end of all the four Gospels, and that takes up a bunch of chapters. But up till then, especially in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is all happening in a small area of Galilee, and which is these cities. <clears throat> what are you Chorazin? What are you Bethsaida? For if the mighty works had been done and you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would, have repent, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, which is a way to repent in ancient times. And I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works had been done in you, that done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you." So we do have um, these three towns in, in Galilee that are mentioned. Um, so here's a map of the three of them up here at the top. They're just north of the Red Sea, or the uh, sea of Galilee. Um, so you have the, the three cities, and they make a triangle. Sometimes they're actually called the triangle. Um, these three major cities. And they are hotbeds for the Pharisaic worldview. If you want to know where like Pharisaism comes from, it is this section of the country. Down south in Jerusalem, they have a little bit of a different sort of worldview and understanding, but Pharisaism, this is it. Like Capernaum itself is like the, the Harvard of Torah study for the Pharisee world. It was where they were highly educated uh, related to these things. And so this whole area, this whole region is really where Jesus does most of his ministry. And, and he never gets killed really by the Pharisees it's until he starts confronting the priesthood that everything goes awry, but they're a bunch of violent individuals anyway. So, so up here, it's just a different experience. Um, now, we will hear later in Jesus's ministry some, some, where he interacts with cities, and, and a few gospel writers write it this way, where the people did not believe, so Jesus like, couldn't do miracles in those cities, right? We, we'll see that. It's, it's like Jesus couldn't perform miracles there because the people didn't believe. But that's not what it says in this text. A, Jesus has been performing all sorts of mighty works. And B, what does it say? The people did not what? Repent. It's a different word. And so at some point, there's, there's sort of the question, all right, like, because these are the people who are passionate, passionate about Yahweh, passionate about the Torah. I mean, they, they know it inside and out probably better than anyone in Israel in their time. But there's, there's something that's not changing. As Jesus comes and starts going, no, 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 here's how, to, here's how to properly interpret the Torah. Here's what God is actually after. Here's the heart matters. Here's how to live this out. There's something that is not actually changing in the people in these cities. And, and so the question is, what are they not repenting from? And I think that's a little bit of the problem to be solved in the text. Uh, there are various like hermeneutics, which is a way to like interpret text methods. But one of those is to go, okay, there's a surface reading, so we can read it very plain and go, yeah, Jesus did miracles, they didn't accept it, and woe to them for not doing that. But particularly in sort of Jewish writing, there's often sort of like, not hidden, but referenced material that bring the actual interpretation to life. 
And, and we're going to deal with this a lot uh, with the parables. So we're going to get like a parable where it's, hey, there was this woman and she took three stays of flour and she put in some yeast and the kingdom of God's kind of like that. And on surface, you're like, okay, that doesn't really mean a lot to me. Until you realize that there is an Old Testament story of a woman who took three stays of flour, which is like 70 pounds of flour. This is not a small amount of flour. It's a very specific large amount. And it's a story in the Old Testament. So it helps us actually go, okay, what does that parable mean then? And I think the same holds true today where we go, okay, well, what was going on in Tyre and Sidon? Why did Jesus name those cities? What was going on in Sodom? Why did Jesus name that city? And it helps us start connecting the dots to be like, yeah, Jesus had these woes, but why, why pick these cities to compare? What was going on there? And how does it relate to what Jesus might be condemning and asking them to repent of in these cities? So let's do some of that. So what are the cities in the text? What are Chorazim and Bethsaida connected to? What two cities? What was that? No, Capernaum's the third city, but, but what's, the, what's the one they're like, oh, what did Jesus say? Like, if, if these miracles have been performed in you, Tyre and Sidon, right? Two coastal cities, like if you know where Haifa in Israel and stuff is, it's kind of up in that area. Coastal, at this point, Gentile. Uh, they were not Israel-occupied uh, cities. And these cities have quite a background. Uh, they do exist quite a bit in some Old Testament texts, and there's really one where it goes, here are the, all the problems of Tyre and Sidon. And that is in the book of Ezekiel, where, where all the problems that are going on in Tyre and Sidon, all the things that God will actually have judgment on happen uh, in Ezekiel 28. And in that, uh, it, we get a list of some of them, that they're filled with violence, uh, that they're prideful, that they're corrupt, all these sort of things. And so you have the city full of like proud, corrupted people who are violent, who are um, possibly taking advantage through violence of the people that they are a part of. And so the question is, all right, why did Jesus choose those two to compare his very religious, astute population to? And, and, And particularly coming off of statements that Jesus has just said of whoever gives one of these little ones a drink of cold water because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward just came off of teaching how to take care of others and then compare these cities who struggle to take care of others and go, it's going to be worse for you guys. And the reason, I think, is these towns have all the wisdom. They have all of God's Torah. They have been studying the scriptures. And yet Tyre and Sidon, who aren't even God's people, like outsiders, like if they had heard from God to repent then, then the argument that Jesus is making is that maybe they would have turned, but you guys know better. And I've been telling you this is what the kingdom is like. I've been showing you these miracles, and yet nothing has changed in your life. And, 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 and there's this comparison. And he does the same with Capernaum, right? What's the corresponding city there? Sodom, right? Why Sodom? What does Sodom do? Um, and before you immediately jump to like sexual sins of Sodom, which uh, we particularly in like American church like to do. Um, Sodom's sins are listed many times in the Bible. Only in the book of Jude does it actually make that connection. Um, other times it doesn't. And so take that as you will, but the book crowd of Matthew doesn't have the book of Jude yet. So uh, let's just at least use the Old Testament as our reference. Ezekiel 16. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. So here's the problems with Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were prideful and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins. 
Just such a dig. It's like an Old Testament mic drop. Um, Samaria hasn't committed half your sins. And this is, um, by the way, a prophecy about Jerusalem. So this is telling Jerusalem, hey, Sodom has done all these terrible things. And, and that's, that's the problem with your sister. And, and having committed, and you, you, like, Samaria hasn't committed half the problem that you guys have. Um, you've committed more abominations than they, and they made your sister appear righteous by all their abominations that you've committed. So Samaria now even seems righteous compared to that. And so you have Tyre and Sidon, these Gentile towns, and, and Jesus saying, look, like, yes, they, they were awful, but not as bad as you guys have been, because you guys should know better. Even, even remember your own prophecies, like, of, of Jerusalem and Sodom and Ezekiel. And remember that, that to your own people, your sins are worse than Sodom's. And once again, pride. Uh, you did not aid the poor and needy. Uh, there was some prideful sin, um, and it uses the word abomination, which some people go, well, clearly that's a sexual sin, but abomination was used for tons of stuff in the Old Testament. Um, even like mismeasured um, weights when you do a transaction was an abomination to the Lord. And so um, there's all sorts of things that could fall into that category. And so the question is, what are the sins that Jesus is directing at? Because he's not, I don't think, complaining about their knowledge or their belief even. But I would argue, they're calling, he's calling to repentance because they're not walking out the way that he's called them to be. And related to Tyre and Sidon and the Sodom, probably the care for the poor, the needy, the prideful, all the sort of stuff that is going on in those cities. And he's saying, like, you are so much worse because you should be repenting from these things, and you're not. You're struggling to live this out. And I think the same holds true. It's like, we can know our doctrine, know our theology, sing incredible worship songs every week. But if we don't, if it doesn't lead to a life of mercy, if it doesn't lead us to change also how we act and how we respond, then, then what are we doing? And woe to us. And particularly what we know about these cities, particularly from the Pharisaic worldview, is that um, they, they see Jesus and yet continue to load people up with rules and regulations, laws and practices that make access to worship itself a total bear. Like people have to live in constant worry. Am I doing it just right? Am I clean enough? Have I violated Torah? Practices that have built a whole system of religiosity that ultimately pushes a lot of people to the edges to never worship, to never experience God, to never come to the people of God. A system of insiders versus outsiders amongst the synagogues and religious systems. Even Jesus will go on to say to the Pharisees that you tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear and lay them upon people's shoulders, which ties a lot into what he's about to say. Lay them upon people's soldiers. So your system of understanding God is such a bear on your people, and you yourselves are not willing to move them with, their, with your finger. So he's saying, and you're not able to help them even navigate their sin and brokenness. He's not, he's not denying that there's some of that, but you're not, you're not helping them. You're not easing that burden at all. And so that's the Pharisee yoke. We'll talk about what yokes are in a second, but that's the Pharisee yoke. And then Jesus starts speaking of his. And first he says this, at that time, Jesus declared, and the word in Greek is not the word that's commonly translated as declared. It's the word like answered or responded. This, Jesus responded. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. So he's responding to someone. There's an interaction here. 
And so, yes, he's praying, but I think it's a, I think it's a marked dig. That these things from the wise and understanding revealed them to little children. Yet, Father, for such was your generous, gracious will. Uh, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except for the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And Jesus, once again, is setting up one of his most famous teachings. And he momentarily, momentarily breaks out in prayer, but as I said, I think it's a different word. The, the aprokonomai is, is really this, this idea of responding to something. So I think he's praying in a way that they are clearly going to hear him. And I think in a world, once again, the Pharisaic world, where the top of the heap, other areas, the top of the heap's the richest people, Herod, folks like that. In the Pharisaic world, the top of the heap are the Pharisees who are wise and understood and have done all their Torah studies, who, who know everything there is to know about exactly what God wants, who are able to rewrite the laws exactly so that you have, in order to obey Sabbath, here are 600 extra laws that you've got to follow to do that just right. They are the people in charge with all the power, the study, and the knowledge. And so I don't think Jesus is being anti-intellectual, but he's looking at this crowd, and, and I think it's a dig to say, oh, well, there's the wise and the understood. But Jesus, you chose to reveal it somewhere else. And almost like the so-called, almost like the so-called wise and so-called understood. We think they have it all. Because that's, that's who everybody would have looked at as the wise and understood. And Jesus is like, no, and you guys get this, and they don't. And, and I think he's reversing it. Because what are, what are children like? <laughs> when, when we think about like the disposition of most children, particularly around like, learning things and stuff like that. What are they like? What was that? Short attention spans. Short attention spans, yeah, some of that. I don't know if that was as true back then. Who knows? What? Open-minded, yeah. Curious. Curious, yeah, that's definitely one. They're inquisitive. What was that? Innocent. Innocent's a good one. So they, they realize there's a lot they don't know yet. Yeah, these are, these are all great. Like my, my middle son ask more questions than I've ever known someone to ask questions uh, before. Um, it's like nonstop about, about a thousand things I don't have an answer to. And so it's, uh, it, it, it wears on you, but he always just wants to know more. He's just curious. He just has questions. And I think there's some of that posture that when Jesus talks about like a childlike faith, that that's it. Sometimes it's uh, the innocence of it. Sometimes it's the humility of it, of I don't have a lot to bring in terms of wisdom and understanding. But sometimes it's also just the curiosity of it. Like I find it fascinating, this is off script, I find it fascinating in the book of Revelation, we just talked about this a couple weeks ago, but at the end, it lists all the people sort of outside the gates of the new heavens, new earth, and of the new Jerusalem. And they're like people that do witchcraft and all this kind of stuff, and they're the people outside. But the people inside, they're not listed as the people who don't do witchcraft and only follow a certain level of obedience and did all these things right, it simply lists them as the thirsty. And I find that fascinating, that like, that's the identifier for God's people, the ones who just long for something and, and desire maybe, maybe more of something. And I also always find it interesting, I really wish we'd rename Israel, because to them, the word Israel is like the word like contends with or wrestles with. Like, it was a good thing. God's like, Jacob, I'm renaming you Israel because you wrestled with me. And, and there's something, I, there's a way to interpret that as they're always contending with God, like they're always in this battle and fighting with God. But there's also a way to go, they're the people willing to like engage 
and, and, and ask and to, and to dig in and to know more and to want those sort of things. And so, um, anyway, so there's something, something to that. I don't know. But, but this curiosity. And in the midst of that, he says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the invitation, if you're here, you're you're burdened, weary, heavy laden, come to me, the yoke is easy. Now what's a yoke? It's a good thing to know what a yoke is. Jackson, what's a yoke? Yeah, that's it. It's, it's this thing that you put on um, particularly cows or bulls uh, to help them move. So this is more of an ancient one. Most of us probably think of like the Amish and their wooden like curved ones, um, but they probably didn't have quite those. But uh, yeah, it was a way to basically attach maybe a plow or some sort of tool um, to a couple oxen, um, usually two. You can do it with one, but it's much easier with two. The two of them do the work of three. One of them only does the work of one. It's really fascinating how the multiplication of power works. But um, they're able to, to do this work. And so they would attach, it would help them uh, do this thing. Now, there was also a metaphorical use of the word yoke in Jesus' time. Rabbi disciples uh, have these relationships and disciple was expected to take on all the teaching and, and the obedience and dedication to the rabbi's, what's called halakha, the, the rabbi's way of life. This is how to live out a good life and, and to be obedient to all that God has said. And all of that was considered the yoke of the rabbi. And there's other writings we could find, like it's the teaching of the rabbi is considered the yoke, the way of life that the, that the rabbi gives to disciples to live. And so the Pharisees too have, have a yoke that they have been teaching. I think Jesus has just given a bunch of woes about. Because they're the people who weigh down everyone with expectations and shame and guilt. And Jesus comes along and goes, no, no, no. My yoke is an easy one. It gives rest for your souls. And so something about the way that Jesus teaches and understands the Torah and has talked about it, the way he teaches it, and, and the way of Jesus, the way to follow God, is an easy yoke. Now, Jesus will still say things about how there's persecution, how there's, there's um, uh, opposition, but there's something about his burden that's distinct. And I want to circle back on that invitation, but I want to make this quick statement because I would argue in Jesus' crowd, um, they would love that invitation, but they would also be very, very shocked by something Jesus just said. That sometimes we look for verses to be like, oh, that's Jesus claiming to be God. And sometimes, actually, if you, if you deal with Hebrew readers, they're like, no, he's not saying that at all. And then there's verses like this where Hebrew readers would be like, whoa, he just said a lot. And uh, I think it's here that, that Jesus is actually making some very provocative statements. Um, the first, uh, I think he says, I will give you rest. Now, uh, I, heard, I heard one scholar said, people either were shocked and silent at that statement or picked up stones ready to kill him. And the reason why is because throughout the Old Testament, there's a constant refrain that there's really only one who gives rest, and, and that is Yahweh. And, and we even see that back right when God's starting to lead his people, and he says, uh, uh, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And so the expectation would be Jesus would be like, hey, my yoke is easy, and God will give you rest. But that's not what Jesus says here. But Jesus says, I will give you rest. And I think in some provocative ways, as if Jesus is saying, I am God. And he says, I'm gentle and humble in heart. Now, if I were to say to you, I am the most humble person on the face of the earth, what would you say? 
that's ridiculous, right? Any, it's like the weird world of humble bragging, like trying to be humble, but also make very confident statements about humility just don't go well together, right? Except for there was somebody who did that. <laughs> and, and even um, you read sort of Jewish scholars and they're like, uh, even the ancient ones are like, there's only one person on the face of the earth that can get away with that. Um, and if, who wrote the book of Numbers? According to tradition, Moses. Okay, here's what he says. Number 12, now the man Moses was very humble, more than any person who was on the face of the earth. Good job, Moses. <laughs> and so writing about himself, he makes this sort of statement. And, and so there was always this tradition that only one person could ever claim that he's humble amongst all the face of the earth. And yet Jesus, once again, makes the statement that I, I am the one who is humble at heart. And so there's a question, is he claiming to be God? And then claiming to be sort of this new Moses type character, which is a big deal for Matthew. And then he says, you will find rest for your souls. Which once again, Old Testament, Jeremiah, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk it and find rest for your soul. And, and he's speaking a bit metaphoric, but this good way, these ancient paths, they're the instructions of God. That's what they would have heard it as. You live the way that God has called you to live, these ways, and you will find rest for your soul. And then yet Jesus is here saying the same thing. And so for an ancient Jew, you, you would possibly hear Jesus make this provocative statement that I am God, I am Moses, and I am the Torah. I am everything you guys have been looking for. And this whole Pharisaic world is not working for you, but I am here. But let's circle back on that yoke. Because it's fascinating because yokes, like, they didn't make the oxen's jobs and stress go away, but they did allow them to shoulder the load of it. And I think that's an important distinction. That Jesus' invitation here is not, I'm going to take away all the problems in your life. That's just not it at all. But, but Jesus giving his people a new way for handling that load. John Mark Comer says this, people all over the world, outside the church and in, are looking for an escape, a way out from under the crushing weight to life on this side of Eden. But there's no escaping it. The best the world can offer is a temporary distraction to delay the inevitable or deny the inescapable. That's why Jesus doesn't offer us an escape. He offers us something far better, equipment. He offers his apprentices a whole new way to bear the weight of our humanity with ease at his side. Like two oxen in a field tied shoulder to shoulder with Jesus doing all of the heavy lifting at his pace, slow, unhurried, present to the moment, full of love and joy and peace. The easy life isn't an option, but an easy yoke is. And that's really important. Um, I really like, um, Steve, Stephen Colbert did a great interview with Anderson Cooper, and there was a really poignant moment where both of them had lost their dad when they were 10. And Stephen Colbert has reflected on this, and one of the things he says is that to, to exist is is to be amongst suffering. Like, that's part of existence. Um, and he's learned to reframe it. He's a good Catholic. He's learned to reframe his suffering. And I think it's really important. And, and Jesus is inviting people in not to fix their circumstances, but to live in such a way that helps them navigate their circumstances in a way that is life and life abundant. And perhaps the painful circumstances you have experienced, like you're walking in with. Perhaps you're in a season where it's just wrecking your soul and leaving you weary. 
that life has just beat you up. Perhaps there's constant relational issues that you have with a spouse or a family member or a boss, coworker or friend, and it just leaves you exhausted. Stress from work or financial struggles, things like that that keep you up in the middle of the night. Perhaps some medical issues that are wrecking havoc or maybe even a loss of a, of a loved one or a close friend has left you distraught. Maybe there's isolation, loneliness, unmet needs, and they're just grating on you. Maybe you live a life of overcommitment and undersleeping, or just a feeling of constant change or transition, whatever your phase of life. And for all these reasons, life can leave us very weary. And Jesus has an invitation to come. And he offers rest. Say, here's, here, here's the way of life that is abundant in the midst of the struggle. And he invites us. Or perhaps we walk in heavy laden. Maybe you have a constant feeling of inadequacy all the time. The sort of imposter syndrome of life. A feeling all the time of needing to prove something to other people, never living up to others' expectations. Seeking affirmation from things like social media or a lover or uh, a coworker or a boss or a family. A feeling of not being Christian enough. I'm not doing enough in my spiritual eye. I just wish I was praying more. I wish I was doing this more. I wish I was doing that more. And feeling like it's, it's a constant rat race to just be spiritual enough. Maybe feelings of never accomplishing all that we feel the pressure to accomplish. And maybe we're heavy laden for past things. Maybe there's stuff in our past, maybe sins that we committed, that we just are still wrecked with shame and guilt and it haunts us and follows us around. Maybe it's sins that other people have committed against us. Verbal or physical abuse or trauma or violence. And those moments are trigger points and you long to be set free from all of that weight. And the invitation is to come to Jesus whose burden is light and yoke is easy. I love the invitation. And I don't know exactly how Jesus sorts all that out. But I knew though the way of Jesus has always helped me navigate the mess of that. I love what uh, Eugene Peterson in the Message Bible says in this section. He says, are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Love that phrase. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And Jesus, who by his life and death and resurrection and I covered this a lot two weeks ago in, in sort of the health sermon, that that was victory over sin and death, over the things that ultimately caused all of this chaos for all of us. All the suffering that we experience, all the weariness we experience, all of it. Even work being hard is an effect of sin, right? Work was part of the garden, and then work became hard, <laughs> right? It's, it's, all, it's all a part of it. And he started the work of reconciling all things to himself, 
and he invites us into this grand project. And he says, look, that was a polluted, sin, broken world, and I'm creating a new world. And this kingdom is coming to earth. And I'm inviting you to be set free from the tyranny of sin in your life. And all of us are still going to suffer, but it's going to cause us to reframe it. It's going to cause us to reframe the toil that work is. It's going to bring us out of darkness and into a world of life and a life that is abundant. That is the invitation on the, on the table. I hope I covered that really well two weeks ago. We, coming to Jesus is not a get out of jail free car, free pass to heaven and not to hell. If, if that's the gospel that we tell, that is so minute compared to the bigger story. That God is inviting us now into, by faith, into a remade world where darkness has been made light and things that are dead are made life. And we are invited to be set free from the tyranny of sin in the past and invited into joy. And it changes things. We get peace in the midst of chaos from it. It's a peace that doesn't make sense. It's a life of generosity and trust in the midst of a world that's constantly grabbing and being greedy and careerism. It's a life of rest and Sabbath in the midst of a world that is constantly exhausted. Like, it's a good gift for God to be like, hey, I need you to, like, not work one day every week. <laughs> in a world where we have phones and work emails and everything else every day of the week. But maybe the way of Jesus should be tested and tried. And I tell you what, to be, to be the people in the city that are arrested in the midst of the chaos of the world, we'll stand out like a sore thumb. A life of communal, independ communal dependence with each other in the midst of individualism and isolation and loneliness. I love that part of the story too. Like, to be real, I mean, church sometimes extra plays up married life as if that's like the fulfillment of what life is, to find a spouse and to have kids. But the Bible doesn't teach it that way. Like even Paul's like, look, if you're single, stay single. Because we are a family. And for singles in our church to feel isolated and lonely, we as a church are doing a disservice because we all have brothers and sisters all over this room and are intertwined because of that and should never feel isolated and lonely. A life of joy in the midst of a world of fleeting dopamine hits, that there's a satisfaction and contentment that could come from Jesus, that none of the constant, like, just giving our brain a little bit of joy once in a while mixed, and a life of victory in the midst of a world of uncertainty. I love this one because um, I think about sports. I can't watch pre-recorded sports. I just can't. And the reason is I usually know the outcome. I can't watch a sport that I know the outcome of because then I have no emotional investment in the game, right? It's like, oh no, they committed a turnover, but I know they still win by 14 in the end, so who cares if this bad moment happened? It just doesn't affect me. And I think there's something to that a little bit about the faith, to be like, you know what, my grief is real, just like the turnover is real, but it doesn't affect me the same way to know that that's not the final part of the story and that Jesus has the victory in the end and reframes it for me. That's what Jesus died for, to remake this world, to conquer sin and death, and to usher in the true new kingdom. And he does this by saying, come to me. The one who is gentle and humble in heart. And I don't want us to move, lose that little phrase too. 
We don't come to a God who's angry and disappointed that we failed again and again. Like when you think of God and you think of him with his arm crossed, kind of disappointed in you, lose that picture. We don't come to a disconnected God who's too busy to pay much mind to us. We don't come to a condemning God who's just waiting to wipe us off the face of the earth. We don't come to a God who has expectations that we sort out our lives before we come to him. And we don't come to a God who is unknowable, but by every means, by, through Jesus, made himself known. And when he know, makes himself known, he says, here's what I am. I am gentle and humble in heart, who unconditionally move towards the broken and the unworthy. I mean, the Old Testament, Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And so Jesus says, come. And so will we respond? Hear me. Salvation is something that happened in your past. It's something that's happening to you. It's something that will happen, according to Paul. We were saved. We're being saved. We will be saved. Our coming to Jesus is a constant motion. Every day we are coming to Jesus.